Hello, everybody. My name is Eric Mercier. I am co-owner of Juice Imports, and I'm going to walk you through the June edition of our Natural Wine Club. This is a really exciting one for us. Uh, this is the 24th Natural Wine Club we've done, and we do the monthly, so that means that next month is the, uh, the two-year uh, I guess anniversary of, uh, of us starting this project which is really great. We have close to 100 members on board now uh, which is again extremely exciting for us so thank you guys all for, for your support over the, uh, over the last couple of years here. Uh, this month we decided to do something pretty special. We decided to focus exclusively on South African wines. Um, over the course of the year we sort of get shipments from different countries at different times of the year. Uh, we tend to get our Austrian shipments sort of closer to the end of summer and fall. We tend to get our uh, South African as well as New Zealand shipments usually in the spring. And so instead of us just trying to force, you know, three different things into the wine club, we decided, hey, let's actually celebrate the fact that we've just received all these wines from South Africa and uh, and actually maybe do a little bit of a, a deep dive on, on what South Africa is like as far as a wine growing country. Um, and not only that, there's been a lot of issues over the last little bit in South Africa. Um, unfortunately, thanks to the pandemic that we're currently going through, um, the government in South Africa decided to halt sales of alcohol in any way, shape or form in South Africa. This was done for a handful of different reasons, the main one being that uh, alcohol-related social gatherings are quite popular, and their figuring is that if we limit the sale of alcohol, um, there's going to be fewer people coming in contact with one another at these sort of events. Um, there'll, there'll be less incentive for people to go out, basically. Um, the other thing is that in order to buy alcohol, you would have to go out, and instead of being a burden on the system, they've decided to to just be like, nope, no alcohol for anybody in any way, shape, or form. You can't buy beer, you can't buy wine. And unfortunately, this also meant that they weren't allowed exporting. So most of the producers that we deal with, they don't sell a ton of their wine locally. And there's a couple reasons for this, is that, first of all, like South Africa really likes to talk about how... Um, they are very modern as far as a country goes, how they're the first one to sort of uh, really emulate those sort of, I don't know, I guess Western ideals uh, for lack of better terminology, um, but these sort of modern health, you know, health systems and, and, and you know, transit and et cetera, et cetera, when realistically they're not quite there yet. Um, there is still an extreme amount of poverty um, there's a lot of challenges that they're dealing with socially, politically, and it's, uh, it, it's basically led to the fact that uh, there's not a huge market for consumption within South Africa. If you look at Africa as uh, a continent, there's not a huge history of, of creating alcohol uh, in general, actually. If you look at Egypt, they were one of the first producers of wine, and they also would have made uh, mead. Um, and then there's sort of various versions of fermented products, usually something sort of resembling beer, um, often made from local root vegetables that they would then ferment, but also from things like grains. But as far as wine consumption goes, uh, there's no real reason 
that wine would be popular in in Africa as a general statement because they haven't really grown up with that history. Grapevines, at least the ones used for making wine, are mostly indigenous to Europe. So it would just follow that uh, places populated primarily by Europeans, that's where you're going to see a lot of wine consumption. So that's why places like Canada, the U.S., Australia, places that had, um, you know, heavy, you know, a, a ton of people from Europe living there, that's where uh, the populations are, are actually drinking a lot of wine. And in South Africa, that's not necessarily the case. Um, although there obviously were uh, the the Dutch as well as several other uh, European peoples who live in South Africa. They still don't make up, you know, the majority of the actual population. So, selling wine in Africa is a huge challenge for them. So, and especially at the price points that they need to sell the wine at in order for it to be viable, in order for them to make wine in a style that they believe in, in order to pay their farmers. Um, a reasonable wage in order to pay their workers a reasonable wage. Um, all, all these different factors basically mean that selling wine within South Africa is definitely not going to be their main market. Um, it's unfortunate, but the the wages uh, for most people are just still too low to be able to afford this these sort of premium products. Uh, not only that, but the rand is extremely devalued, so their currency is not very strong. Uh, which means that exporting, even if they're exporting for what we perceive as uh, you know, quite inexpensive prices, they're actually still making huge gains over trying to sell it locally for an equivalent price. So all of our producers from South Africa rely very heavily on export. Uh, and the fact that they weren't able to export has really affected their viability, um, you know, affected their, their ability to continue on as wineries in some cases. And so luckily, I think everybody is, is pulling through. And as of, I think this week, if not maybe early last week, um, they have lifted that ban and now exports are uh, permitted. And I believe alcohol sales locally are also being relaxed a little bit now too. Um, but again, you know, six weeks of lockdown has, has really affected them. I think it was six weeks at least. Um, the other major issue is that the places that they're exporting to, um, they're having a lot of challenges as well. Um, one of the major export markets for the producers that we deal with uh, is definitely Japan. And Japan, at the moment, they've sort of put everything on halt. So a lot of these importers who had committed to large amounts of wine uh, to go to Japan have decided not to take um, that stock. So now not only have they not been able to sell wine for six weeks when you know this is the time of year when they're normally selling um the people who did commit to selling to, to importing their wine uh have all of a sudden had to back out for their own reasons um so for all these reasons we we definitely want to support south africa as much as humanly possible right now um they're going through some pretty challenging things, and they were going through some challenging things before this, especially from a political perspective. And um, not to sort of perpetuate the idea, but uh, you know, when you talk to South Africans about politics, it gets very heated very quickly. There's a reason for that. There, there, you know, things haven't gotten as much better as we in the international community like to believe in some cases. And so we're really proud of the the people that we work with and you know, they're doing their absolute best to 
um, you know, support the communities that they're that they're living in by, you know, creating wineries where living wages are a possibility, uh, raising the overall international reputation of South African wine is a huge component of that. Because if they can sell their wines for more money internationally on average, then that means more money is going back into the industry and can spread. Um, so for all these reasons, we're, we really wanted to focus on South Africa. Not only that, but the, the wine quality has improved so drastically over the last you know 10 years or so. Um, one of the major problems for South Africa was that a lot of the vines were planted during apartheid. And what a lot of people don't realize about apartheid is that um, there was basically this sort of isolationist uh, philosophy as well as uh, basically major blockades preventing things from coming into and leaving the country. And so the way that that affected the wine industry is that they were unable to get healthy vine stock, meaning that most of the vineyards planted um, during the apartheid period, uh, a lot of those vines were actually infected with um, a handful of different diseases, but the major one being leaf roll virus, which is um, pretty detrimental to wine quality, depending on who you're talking to and depending on the the particular situation. Um, So a lot of the vines planted at that time were, were really not that good, which led to the wines tasting not really that good. Again, you can't make you know a good apple pie from rotten apples. It's the same thing with wine. You need really good quality grapes, and if the vines are already you know uh, affected in some major way, you're not going to end up with great tasting wine at the end of the whole experience. So, over the last you know ten plus years now, there's been this huge amount of work put into um, quarantining vines on their way into the country. Um, I believe they're quarantined for three years, which is a crazy amount of time and a, and a huge amount of effort and a huge amount of resources spent on on doing this. But it's resulted in way higher quality vine stock being available um, across the across the country. I actually got to visit the place where they do this quarantining, and it was one of the most impressive little labs I've ever seen in my entire life. They had new grape varieties that had never been to South Africa before. Um, Things like uh, a lot of um, grape varieties from um, from northern Spain, uh, so Perriada, um, uh, Chirello, uh, things like that. Um, so super, super excited for that, as well as Sicilian grape varieties, so things like Nero d'Avola, um, Frappato, so grape varieties that are quite resistant to heat and drought. Uh, so, you know, the grape varieties that will survive in a in a climate that is very much South African. So that's all very exciting. Um, and this has just led to a huge increase in quality. Not only that, but since apartheid ended, there's been a lot more opportunity for South Africans to actually travel, which means that the winemakers have actually been to France. They've actually been to Italy. They've actually been to the U.S. where they can pick up these techniques, um, you know, learn about... Um, you know, all the discoveries in winemaking that have happened over the last couple decades. And this has led to a huge um, increase in quality, as well as a more informed style. So instead of just making wines the way that they tasted, you know, 50 years ago in the era where uh, sweet and highly alcoholic wines were once, you know, extremely popular, they're making wines that are more balanced. They're sort of understanding what the international um, 
benchmark for each style actually is. And again, these things have all led to an increase in quality. And then I'd say that the final thing is that the younger generation is getting really involved now. Um, most of the winemakers that we work with are, you know, between 30 and 50 years old. Um, and they're, they're very excited. They're, they're really keen to show off what this country can do. Um, there's so many different soil types, so many different aspects, so many different climates that it, it's kind of a playground for any winemaker. And at the moment, although it's not inexpensive to buy vineyard land, it's definitely one of the most approachable countries as far as actually owning a vineyard. Um, and so many of the winemakers that we work with are either looking at buying a vineyard, looking at planting a vineyard, um, or you know maybe that's somewhere down the line for them, which is not the case for most producers, especially in places like California, where it's almost impossible to actually own a vineyard unless you're you know a millionaire, um, and even then you're probably priced out, frankly. So it's still accessible for some people in some ways, especially if you're willing to put in the work. All right, so we'll get into the actual wines here now that I've you know ranted. Uh, one of the other things that we, we get asked all the time too is that whether or not this is this is scripted in any way, shape, or form. But this is literally just me with a cup of coffee after having written the uh, the wine club newsletter and uh, ranting into a microphone by myself for uh, X amount of time. <laughs> so apologies if it seems random sometimes. So the first wine that we're going to talk about today is Craven Cinso. Uh, this wine is completely mind-boggling to me. There's very few wines that uh, I get as much joy from drinking. When I first visited South Africa, I got to meet up with uh, Mick and Janine Craven. Um, they are the owners slash winemakers slash quasi-viticulturalists for this project. Um, they're the most humble and inviting people of all time. Uh, they're sort of the opposite of one another. Like Mick is, you know, six and a half feet tall, um, kind of a little bit of a wild child, uh, at least from my interpretation of it. We chat often, uh, lots of texts back and forth. He's usually, uh, you know, hazing me on the internet in some way, shape or form for something that I've posted on Instagram. So he's definitely, uh, yeah, a little bit wild, a little bit crazy in a, in a very good way. Um, and Janine, on the other hand, seems super focused, um, you know, kind of, the, kind of the opposite. They're very yin and yang to one another, um, which is absolutely fantastic. I think they balance themselves out really, really nicely. Um, they're working with this vineyard um, in basically the eastern side of, or sorry, the western side of Stellenbosch. Um, it's a little bit closer to the ocean, has a lot more oceanic influences, so it's quite cool. Um, there's a lot of granite in the soils here, um, and you can really feel all these things in the wine in the sense that it has this, this freshness, this almost seaside kind of quality to it. Um, you know, it's kind of the way that, you know, everybody always rants and raves about sort of like the berries that grow on the East Coast, and that's exactly what I get off of this, is like sort of that like, fresh strawberry and sea salt kind of characteristic. Uh, it just speaks so much to the place that it comes from. So this is made from Cinso. Um, Cinso is a great variety that comes from southern France, um, sort of in the neighborhood of the Rhone Valley. Uh, so this is the area where you see a lot of Grenache, Mouvedre, Syrah, Carignan. Uh, those are sort of the main red grape varieties. And then Cinso sort of plays second fiddle to most of those. It often ends up in 
uh, rosés um, because it tends to be a little bit lighter in color and that area of the world is quite renowned for making very dark colored, very brooding wines. Um, what people have realized though recently is that Cinso tastes fantastic on its own as a red wine as sort of an alternative to Pinot Noir. Usually in hot climates like South Africa or in its homeland, the Southern Rhone, um, you end up with quite brooding wines, higher alcohol levels, darker colors, um, richer flavors, and that's not always what you want. Like if you're eating something delicate, like you know, chicken, like something along those lines, you don't necessarily want to be drinking a massive red wine. And so Cinso has kind of offered this really amazing alternative um, for these warmer climates where they can make wines that are lower alcohol. So this is 12.5% alcohol, but yet still has freshness, vibrancy, um, ripeness is definitely on the riper end of the spectrum, um, especially in this vintage where it is Again, very sort of like strawberry driven, which is something that I just absolutely love. When, when The second I smell strawberry in a wine, I get very excited because it's not a super common tasting note, at least not for me. Um, it's usually more on sort of the cherry end of the spectrum and not that I'm against that. Uh, strawberries are just super exciting from a, from a wine perspective, from a drinkability perspective. Um, as far as actual winemaking goes here, uh, with most of their wines, they're fermenting whole cluster. Um, which means that they don't destem the grapes. Uh, they leave the grapes on the stems during fermentation. Um, but for the Cinso, they've decided to destem. And the reason for this is that the stems, um, they basically lower the acidity. Um, they increase the pH by leaching potassium into the actual wine. Um, and this causes the wines to be maybe a little less fresh tasting, a little softer. Um, and this works with high acid grape varieties, but for them, their Cinso, they're trying to preserve as much acidity as possible. So they've decided to actually destem for this particular wine. So you end up with something that's very bright and fresh, but still has really nice structure, really nice texture to it at the same time. Um, they age this in neutral barrel uh, for a period of time, less than a year. Um, those neutral barrels aren't imparting any flavor. It's just a vessel. Uh, oak barrels are really great for allowing you know, micro amounts of oxygen into the wine, which helps with stability. It helps with clarification. It helps with um, locking in the color, all these different things. Um, so uh, aging in barrel is great for them because it just softens the wine a little bit. For me, this is the ultimate in drinkability. Um, I have drank a lot of these bottles of wine before. Um, they either do or did have them on the list at um, Two Penny here in Calgary. Uh, it goes fantastic with Asian food, uh, so I can see why they would put it on their list. It, it just works magically with pretty much anything on there. Um, but it's really reminiscent of, of things like Gamay Noir and Pinot Noir. Um, so pair it with lighter dishes. Um, you know, I think in my write-up I said tacos, uh, but really it's, it's a pretty versatile wine. It can go with a lot of different things. Uh, the last shout-out that I have is that the packaging is beautiful. Uh, <laughs> I find that this wine, almost more than any other wine, tastes exactly how the packaging looks. Um, that really sort of like lavender-y kind of color uh, really evokes all the characteristics in the wine. So the next one that we're going to talk about is uh, Intelego uh, Syrah. This is coming from Swartland. Um, so the last one that we had came from Stellenbosch, which is just uh, east of Cape Town. And this is coming from just north of Cape Town. 
Um, Jürgen, the guy who makes this wine, uh, he originally worked at a winery called Lemmerschok, um, which is kind of famous for introducing biodynamics to South Africa. Um, not only that, but the wines at that particular time were made by Craig Hawkins, who is the winemaker slash owner of Testalonga, which is probably the most famous natural wines coming out of South Africa. And so Jürgen, uh, I believe, was the assistant winemaker. And uh, he learned a lot, obviously, from, from Craig, uh, and then has also gone off on his own and worked at Domaine Jamais, um, in Cote Roti, which is some of my favorite wines coming from the Rhone Valley in France. Uh, and they focus almost exclusively on Syrah, which I think has influenced the style of Syrah that he makes now. Um, the Syrah that we've included in this month's wine club is um, basically considered his benchmark. This is, this is as good as it gets, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Um, you know, it's his flagship wine. It's it's the first wine that he made under his own label. Um, and not only that, it's the wine that's probably received the most accolades for him. I believe in uh, the wine mag, um, Christian Edis, um, I believe that's how you say his last name at least, um, he gave this like 96 out of 100 points. And although I don't believe in scoring wines on a, on a point scale, uh, I do think that it speaks to the the crazy quality level of this actual wine. We're super thrilled that we got to include it in Wine Club. We basically got just enough bottles. Uh, there's maybe six bottles left over. That's it. Uh, so we really had to sort of scrounge to make this one work for the Wine Club, but I, I think it was definitely worth it. Um, so this particular wine is coming from um, sort of two different vineyards. Um a vineyard planted in uh, 2001, um, so not super old vines, but not super young vines either. And then a vineyard planted in 2003 uh, on the Pardeberg, um, which is uh, sort of an important mountain in the Swartland that we'll talk a little bit more about with the next wine. Um, but the the whole goal with Syrah is you want to get balance. Syrah. Uh, also called Shiraz in places like Australia um, and often called Shiraz in South Africa as well actually um, can be quite brooding it can be high alcohol it can be very sweet and rich and supple um, to the point of being overwhelming in some cases Uh, you know for any of you who have had uh, the really crazy Shirazes out of Australia that are you know 15% alcohol and quite sweet and you know, have no acidity to them. Um, they're really delicious, but sort of more in the same way that, uh, you know, something like a brownie is delicious. Like you don't necessarily want a lot of it. It's good to taste. Like it's very, it's very tasty, like a mouthful, but you wouldn't want to actually drink a bottle. So to get Syrah into this point where, where it's balanced, um, is challenging to do. And I think that, uh, Jurgen does a better job of this than pretty much anybody. Um, this wine was fermented 100% whole cluster. So unlike the Cinso that we just talked about, um, they actually left these grapes on the actual stems. This is really great for Syrah. Um, it tends to produce a lot of really fruity aromatics. Um, and the skins themselves actually impart a little bit of flavor, which is almost a spice component. Syrah on its own always has quite a bit of spice to it, a peppery kind of gamey quality. Um, 
a lot of people call it like garig, which is the like the group of wild herbs that grow in southern France. Uh, that's like lavender and rosemary and sage, things like that. And Syrah uh, can often have a smell that's quite similar to that. And I think you get that here as well. And by including the stems, you're actually sort of enhancing that flavor. You're offering a little bit more of that spice note. Uh, if you ever get a chance and you're in an actual vineyard, uh, especially when the grapes are fully ripe, it's really interesting to sort of chew on a stem and see what flavors it's actually imparting. I know that sounds super weird and geeky, but it's actually a lot of fun to do. And you'll notice with stems that are ripe, they'll actually taste sweet. They actually have sugar in them the same way the actual grapes have sugar in them. So they're actually imparting these, again, sort of tasty qualities to the actual wine. Um, stems that are really ripe can offer almost like a woodsy quality. Um, almost similar to like cinnamon and nutmeg and things like that. Uh, and you'll notice that when you're tasting them versus uh, stems that are slightly less ripe, you'll get more of a green, herbaceous, almost hoppy characteristic. Uh, in some cases that can be quite astringent and unpleasant, but if you can kind of get that ripeness correct, then it's offering a lot of really great flavors. As far as the way that this actual wine tastes, uh, I'm a huge fan of this style of Syrah, where it's both dark-fruited, so a lot of that blackberry and plum and cassis, things like that, but then also this lifted, um, almost wild raspberry quality to it, um, that like smoky kind of cedar vibe going, gunpowdery, it's a little bit reductive, so it kind of gets that gunpowdery quality. Uh, and then the floral elements are sort of a telltale sign of really good Syrah for me. So things like violets, things like lavender. Um, and it's it's just a style that I absolutely adore. As far as drinkability goes, uh, you can definitely drink it now. But this is one of the few wines that we've included in Wine Club that will actually age for quite a long period of time. Um, I believe the vintage that we've included here is 2018. Um, but this will easily last until you know, 2028, so 10 years from, from the actual vintage, uh, and just improve and improve and improve, uh, if you like that sort of thing. As red wines get older, they tend to lose their color, they tend to end up softer and lighter stylistically, so if that's the sort of thing that you like, then, you know, aging it definitely wouldn't be a bad idea. If you can get your hands on one of those few remaining six bottles from uh, whatever store you're picking up from, I'd suggest maybe, you know, drinking one now and then aging one for, again, that five to 10 year period and just see how the how the wine actually evolves. Um, for pairings here, again, it's pretty flexible, but I would definitely say, um, you know, heartier food is going to be better in this case. Um, red meat, obvious pairing, um, things with uh, you know, that Greek spice quality to it, like almost Herbe de Provence. Anything that you can add Herbe de Provence to, like that's going to be a good pairing for this. I think the um, herbaceous and spicy notes go go together extremely well. Um, I'd stick away, or stay away, sorry, from, from spicy foods here. Um, I find that Syrah has enough tannin, enough structure that spice doesn't really get along so well. If you're going to do something with a little bit of spice, I'd say that the Cinso is going to be the, the better option for you. Uh, the last wine that we're going to talk about today, um, this is made by my friends Samantha and Ryan. I've been following their wine project for quite a long time, even when I worked at Vine Arts before Juice was even a thing. I uh, had sort of been following them you know, on the internet and uh, really wanted to taste their wines. I thought their packaging was amazing. I thought their story was amazing. And I thought they were doing really interesting experimental things. So 
this is the the second wine that we've ever included from uh, Silvervis. Um, in the wine club, we included the red version of this wine previously, uh, which was really great. Um, you know, I'd say that one of the wines that we sold the most after putting it in wine club ever was the the uh, the red smiley. Um, people went kind of bonkers for it and. You know, they liked that it was a little bit richer style, a little bit more intensely flavored, was like a little bit funky, um, almost a little effervescent in some cases, so it was still drinkable. Um, it's, yeah, it was quite a wild ride. And uh, this just gets even crazier. Um, <laughs> this particular wine is made um, from grapes grown on the Partaberg. Um, Partaberg is this mountain that's sort of just north of Cape Town. It's sort of the on the way into Swartland as far as an actual region goes. So on the southern end of the, the Swartland region. And this uh, mountain range kind of almost looks like a hand from above. Um, so there's sort of this main mass that would be kind of like the palm of the hand and then all these fingers that extend from it um, that go sort of towards the north. And in between each of the fingers in those valleys, that's where you end up with most of the grapes planted. and you have a variety of different grapes planted here. You have everything from Grenache and Syrah um, to white grapes like uh, since, or um, like Chenin Blanc, like we do in this particular case. Um, they've decided to get really crazy with this Chenin Blanc and see what happens when you do a bunch of different techniques. Basically, classic winemaking goes that you should just make it one way, and that's the way that everybody else makes it, and it's simple and not particularly unique. Um, but their thought was that, hey, we've never tried these other methods before. Maybe they're better. How do you know for sure that they're not good unless you try them? And when they did try these methods, uh, they ended up being extremely delicious, so much so that uh, it made this wine pretty famous for them. So they're taking Chenin Blanc grapes and, and treating them four different ways. So the first way is that they do direct press into barrels. So that means that they leave the stems on, um, the actual grapes, put them in uh, what we call a pneumatic press or a bladder press, um, and then squish the grapes and the juice runs into a barrel where it ferments. Um, that's how most white wine is made. It's a super simple process. Um, leaving the stems on basically means that the juice ends up being a lot cleaner because the stems offer like little channels for the juice to run out as you're crushing the grapes. Um, so it yields this really light, very delicate style uh, of Chenin Blanc, and then they aged it um, in barrel, um, which again adds a little bit more texture to this thing that was quite delicate, quite light. And so that's the, that's the first component. The second component is made like orange wine. So for those of you who joined us last month, um, orange wines are made by fermenting white grapes with the actual skins. So not just using the grape juice, but using the grape skins as well. This extracts a lot of texture. So things like uh, phenolic compounds, things like tannins, um, which are adding to the actual mouthfeel of the wine. Um, and so it's a really interesting style. And so a quarter was made this way. The next component was used, um, was made using matterization, which is a process derived um, from a particular wine made in Madeira. That's where the word matterized comes from. And the way that they would make wine in Madeira historically um, was that they would leave their barrels of wine in some cases uh, under these tin roofs. And over the summer, that would basically cook the wine. 
um, this heating and cooling process of, of from day to night basically stabilize the wine. Um, it's kind of almost like pasteurizing it or something like that. Uh, and you end up with these wines with these really interesting sort of deep, nutty, um, I don't know, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to, to describe. Um, often people call it rancio. Um, so this, this flavor of decay, basically, but in a, in the most positive way, like in the same way that, you know, raisins taste really good or fermented foods taste really good. Um, it creates all these sort of umami characteristics, um, that are very beautiful and a lot of depth. Uh, and so they've used this style on on one quarter of their wine, which is unique. I've never really heard of anybody outside of Madeira um, making this style of wine. There's a handful of exceptions, but really it's super uncommon. The final component that they did was aged uh, souvoile. So souvoile is, basically means under the veil. And so what happens is this is that there is this particular species of yeast or subspecies of yeast, I guess, um, that floats to the surface of the actual wine and it feeds off of the oxygen in the air uh, from one side and then the other side is feeding off the actual wine itself. So this is usually happening after alcoholic fermentation. So once all the sugar has been converted into alcohol, um, and so it's feeding off of different components in the wine. It's eating things like glycerol, for instance. So it makes the wine quite uh, tense and tight, um, very focused, very almost salty and briny tasting um, in the most positive <laughs> way that you can possibly take those words. Um, and this is the style that's made in, uh, in places like Chateau Chalon um, in, um, in the Jura in France. Uh, as well as the reason that things like Mandania and um, and Fino Sherry's taste the way that they do, that really sort of nutty, almost almondy, um, kind of like quinine. Again, it's very hard to describe these flavor characteristics. Um, they're basically coming from uh, aldehydes uh, are what are creating these actual flavors. So they're super exciting. They're really interesting. They're very savory, very umami, um, but they add a really cool component to the wine. Uh, so they take all four of these components and, and treat them separately and blend some of them together. And, uh, at the end of it, when they're going to bottle the wine, they're actually blending multiple vintages. So they've been doing this for five years now. Um, and they've held back some of each of those wines from each of those years. So this particular wine is actually a blend of all five of those vintages and all four of those different styles. So that's a lot of blending components that you have to, to fool around with. You know, 25 different options that you can kind of uh, fiddle around with and get the ratios just right to make something that's not only extremely drinkable, but uh, like sublimely complex in, in ways that I never knew wine could be complex. Um, from a flavor profile perspective, again, I think it'll be just more fun if you taste it for yourself and try and come up with your own tasting notes. Uh, it's just so wild and impossible to actually describe, but, um, that's what I love about this wine. And it's not only me who loves this wine either. And, you know, there's definitely wines that I put in this club that are very much selfish. I'm like, I think this is cool. I know enough of you out there will be interested in trying something that's unique and interesting. Um, and, uh, and those wines end up in the wine club. And, and, uh, in this case, this is not only me who thinks it's cool. Um, but it's getting rave reviews from all around the world. 
they're exporting to places like uh, South Korea, for instance. They have a huge following in South Korea, um, which is absolutely amazing. They have a huge following like Norway and Sweden, as far as I know. I don't know why the uh, the, the northern countries are really into them, but um, I guess it makes sense with their food. Uh, but at the same time, they're, they're also just cool people. Um, so... It's definitely a little bit on the wild side, but in a in a way that I think all of you will will get along with really nicely. Um, again, we don't receive a ton of this wine. I think we got like twenty five cases this year, so uh, you know just enough for the actual wine club. But I don't know. That's that's the fun of being in the wine club. You get to taste stuff that nobody else gets to try. Uh, as far as pairings go for this particular wine, I decided to keep it um, pretty classic. Um, I wanted to use foods from the places that inspired this actual wine so one being from um, Jerez so in, in southern Spain where sherry is made uh, I said that conservas uh, would be an awesome combination so conservas are uh, like canned fish of different types there's a ton that I'm a really huge fan of whether that be uh, you know the little smoked sardines are absolutely amazing um, all the way to things like cockles um, again absolutely delicious, uber expensive. So in the actual write-up, I've, I've mentioned a couple that I think would be really good pairings for this. Uh, and then the other thing that I um, did the pairing for uh, was there's this style of chicken that comes from uh, the Jura where they do, um, it's like coco vin, so like, uh, like chicken cooked in wine, but it's coco vin jaune. Uh, so they're using uh, wine aged under floor and they're basically braising a chicken in that wine for you know an extended period of time with lots of garlic uh, usually morel mushrooms are a huge component and then you're usually making some sort of cream sauce from uh, that braising liquid afterwards and so it's rich it's mushroomy it's umami um, super supple it's kind of a really impressive pairing for this particular wine. I think the umami characteristics of mushrooms get along really well with it, so I think you'll be a, a huge fan. Well, I think that's uh, as much as I have to say about this month's wines. If anybody has any questions, feel free to reach out to us. You can send me an email at eric, E-R-I-K, at juiceimports.com. Um, you can go to our website, www.juiceimports.com, and there's a uh, a place where you can find our email address on there or send us a, a message on Instagram, which is just at Juice Imports. Super easy. Um, looking forward to chatting with you next month. We're going to try and get some pretty crazy wines into the club for our two-year uh, birthday, but I'm sure we'll just try and fit crazy wines into every wine club from now until forever. So thanks again for the support. We'll chat soon.